This is Growing Pulse Crops, and I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. Today, we'll talk about nodulation, inoculants, and nitrogen fixation with Dr. Barney Geddes. That's been a big focus for us is competition. These are living organisms that have to come into our environment, right, and thrive there somehow and stick around for the growing season. At least in the case of rhizobium, the plant makes a nice home for them. In other biologicals, you're just hoping that they can kind of stick it out against the rest of the microbiome. But thinking about that competition and, and what allows a microbe to thrive in a new environment is something we're starting to do a lot. Potentially through doing that, we can find elite ones that aren't just great at fixing nitrogen, but are also really well adapted to thriving in our soils, right? Um, and if we can do that, then I think there's a lot of scope for improvement of the inoculants that we're using here. Dr. Barty Geddes is an assistant professor at North Dakota State University in the Department of Microbiological Sciences. His work focuses on microbes with the goal of boosting crop yields for farmers. More specifically, though, he studies rhizobia, which forms symbiotic relationships with legume crops like pulses. Today's episode is a fascinating look into how nodulation works and what that means for farm decisions like purchasing inoculants. I get a chance to pick Barney's brain not only on some of the basics behind nitrogen fixation, but also we get a chance to go more in depth talking about how different microbes compete with each other and when and what that means for yield when growing pulse crops. Barney grew up on a farm in Manitoba, and after studying microbiology as an undergrad, he decided to apply this knowledge to his lifelong passion for sustainable agriculture. So his perspective is not only deep into the science, but also rooted in the reality of growing up on a commercial farm. I asked if he'd kick off our episode with a little bit of Root Nodulation 101. Nodulation, or the ultimate formation of a root nodule on the root of, of these pulses, is really the result of quite an elegant communication and signal exchange between the plant and the microbe. And so starting the whole process off, the plant actually secretes signals from its roots called flavonoids. And these signals are perceived by rhizobia. They help them know that this is the right host for me. Um, and they respond with their own signaling molecules called nod factors. And it's really this signal exchange that's required for the formation of the root nodule by the plant. So the plant waits until it sees this response from the rhizobia, this nod factor signal, and that's what really triggers the whole process to happen. So it's not really that the rhizobia are forcing it, they're really doing it kind of in response to a cue from the host plant. And it's really a communication between the two that ultimately leads the plant to sort of understand it has the right microbe there to allow it to kind of gain entry. And then it kind of builds this house for it called the root nodule. Interesting. And so the flavonoids, I would assume all legumes secrete these flavonoids. And that kind of triggers a chemical response in the bacteria, in the microbes. So can we just boost the amount of flavonoids uh, a plant will secrete? Will that improve nodulation and thus, you know, nitrogen fixation? Yeah, I mean, flavonoids really are not limiting factor. They only need to be there in tiny, tiny amounts to kind of trigger the whole process to take off. So there's lots of opportunities for intervention. I don't think that's maybe a key one. But, you know, there are inoculant companies that have been actually adding the nod factor, the molecule from the rhizobia, into inoculants with kind of the goal of maybe enhancing nodulation a little bit. Whether those products are really that much more effective than just the rhizobia, I'm not sure that there's tons of evidence about that. But that, you know, it is something, I guess, that companies are thinking about. But really, you know, the signaling process only needs to happen at very tiny concentrations to kind of get the ball rolling, basically. And if rhizobium are there, 
they're going to see the signaling molecules and, and the plant's going to be able to respond to them pretty effectively. Right. And I'm going to make an assumption, but I want you to speak to this because I might be totally wrong, that the amount of rhizobium that are present in any given field are going to vary quite a bit. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, farmers often apply rhizobia as inoculants, basically making sure enough rhizobia are there to fix nitrogen with the pulse, but also to try to make sure that the right rhizobia are there, the ones that are going to be the most productive. So, you know, when you look out in a field, there may be rhizobia there, there likely is in many cases, but the amounts there are going to vary a lot, whether it's a threshold that's optimal for, you know, getting enough nodules to maximize that nitrogen fixation is a question that, that may be different from field to field um, and year to year. So, you know, inoculation really is, it's kind of a bed hedging process in many ways and just making sure that, that everything's there for that relationship to kick off and sort of take place. And does this all happen within a very small time window? Like, the, you know, the, the interactions between microbe and plant have to happen when the plant's at a certain stage in order for nodulation to occur? Not necessarily. I mean, the plant is very clever in understanding how much nitrogen it needs. And so as it starts to grow in the spring, it's going to be pretty quickly starting to look to form root nodules if it's in a situation where it doesn't have a lot of nitrogen. And so that nodulation will occur and typically continue to occur until the plant is happy with the amount of nitrogen it's receiving, and then it'll actually shut the whole process down. The plants have an investment in the symbiotic relationship as well. They have to give some of that photosynthate, the carbon that they make, to the nodule to fuel the process, and they don't want to overdo it. And we don't want them to overdo it because that does come at a little bit of a, a cost of what you could be putting into biomass. But they're pretty good at, at figuring out what they need and, and intricately controlling, getting just the right amount there. But like. Like I said, it, it depends on what's there. So, you know, that's actually maybe one challenge sometimes is the plant, if there is nitrogen in the soil, sometimes will not nodulate. Even if we might want to save the nitrogen that's in the soil for a future crop um, and have the pulse rely on nitrogen fixation, that actually won't work that way. They'll tend to get a little lazy and, and just take up the nitrogen from the soil rather than form the symbiotic relationship if there's a lot of residual nitrogen hanging around. We've had the conversation here on the podcast before about, you know, how much nitrogen benefit do you get from having a pulse crop and then going back to kind of a non-legume crop? And and we're having trouble predicting exactly when that benefit will show up. And I wonder if part of it is like the presence of nitrogen in the soil really limiting the amount of nodulation and hence, you know, kind of nitrogen fixation that you're getting in season. That seems like it would be a big factor. Yeah, totally. And I think that's something that, you know, farmers that are looking to incorporate this sustainable source of nitrogen into their rotations need to be thinking about is, you know, being smart about where you're going to put the legume and where you're going to maximize the symbiosis that's occurring based on residual nitrogen that's left over from from previous years. And so, all right, the plant puts out these flavonoids signaling the microbes. And uh, tell me again, what's nod factor again? Yeah, so nod factor is basically the rhizobia's response to the plant. It's a signaling molecule that they make. Um, it's actually based on chitin. It looks a little like some structures that fungi make. And it's highly specific. So it has different decorations on it, you could call them. And each rhizobium makes basically a unique version of this structure. And the legumes that are the right host for, for that rhizobium can recognize the appropriate structure and trigger the formation of root nodules in response to that. So this is kind of a layer of specificity of the symbiosis that's really the reason why you can't take a soybean inoculant and get that to inodulate peas. 
because they produce a molecule that soybeans recognize and will form root nodules with. But different rhizobia produce a, a more specialized structure that's going to signal directly to the peas, for example. Um, so there's really this elegant specificity in that symbiosis. And just same with nod factor, flavonoids are also unique between the rhizobium and legumes. So the ones for pea will recognize pea-specific flavonoids, the ones for soybean will recognize soybean-specific flavonoids. So it's actually that signaling that's the reason that you have to buy a different product for each crop you plant, basically, because there really is that tight exchange of signals that occurs between the, the rhizobium and its appropriate legume. Yeah. And the plant's response then is based on how much nitrogen the plant predicts needing, plus how much of this nod factor they're picking up from the microbes that will determine how many nodules they, they form. Yeah. I mean, I don't think the nod factor needs to be there in a high amount, but yeah, basically the rhizobia you can imagine are all over the root. They're producing nod factor and kind of almost like firing off at different spots in the root. The plant will decide to sort of trigger the process to start occurring with with rhizobia in these sort of different positions based on that nod factor being there. And so, yeah, that triggers off. And the first thing the plant does, so along the roots, they have these little root hairs that come off of the roots. Those root hairs actually curl around the rhizobium and trap them inside. And they make this structure called the shepherd's crook structure. And the rhizobia become trapped in there. And then the plant basically draws them inside of the cell of the root hair. So it makes kind of a little tunnel for them to follow. And they actually end up going into the cell of the plant, which is quite amazing. And following that into the interior of the root. And then the plants kind of builds that nodule structure around them as they divide and colonize more and more plant cells. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that it's different uh, rhizobia with, with different nod factors for different hosts. Are those each individual, you know, one species, or are we talking multiple species that would fit for, say, a uh, field pea? Yeah, so that's kind of a complicated question, and it depends a lot on the plant. So some plants, we call them promiscuous. They're a bit more open to what rhizobia they might form a relationship with. So a good example of that is, is dry beans. And it might be one of the reasons that dry beans aren't terribly efficient nitrogen fixers compared to other legumes. But others are extremely specific. Peas are an example of one of the very, very specific kinds. So they need not just a specific species, but even a specific, we call them biovar, like a more specific level of species, a specific group within a species that they actually associate with. So they're very, very choosy in terms of what rhizobia they actually allow to form that symbiosis. You probably would be amazed how varying these rhizobia are in their quality. So when we look at this collection that we've pulled out of pea rhizobia that we've pulled out of North Dakota soils. We have about a thousand rhizobia in the collection. We've screened about a hundred of them. And we get kind of a perfect gradient all the way from, they would look no different if you just added water and no rhizobia at all. So there's literally no benefit, even though root nodules are formed, to being amazingly productive. And in some cases, you know, twice as big as ones that we've used inoculants on. So there's this enormous variation in just in what we have in our soils, right? Which is kind of incredible. But, you know, the problem there is if those are all existing together, then you have some nodules maybe formed by good strains, but a bunch formed by poor strains. And then the pea's kind of wasting some of its symbiosis in some sense. If there isn't too much nitrogen present in the soil, enough to where the, the plant is, is operating, you know, trying to put out these, uh, uh, these flavonoids, and the rhizobia, is there what other factors might limit 
you know, nodulation. And then I want to talk about assuming the nodulation's there, what might impact nitrogen fixation from there? Sure. Yeah. So both nodulation and nitrogen fixation are limited by similar things. And the easiest way to think about it is that anything that's going to stress the plant is probably going to stress the symbiosis. So, you know, from an agronomic perspective, things like drought, things like salinity are going to, to impact the symbiosis, but also probably the nodulation. And then other factors that can impact rhizobia a lot are, are the pH of the soil. So different rhizobia have sort of different windows of pH they can operate well at. And so that actually be, would be maybe a, a big one for nodulation impact. So acidic pH is especially famous for, particularly for P rhizobia, the more acidic your pH gets, some of those rhizobia really struggle to thrive in those, those pHs maybe below five and a half or so. And so, yeah, that can be a big limiter. Yeah. Unfortunately, we're seeing more and more soil with, with pH that low. Hmm. And then for the nitrogen fixation, kind of the same thing if, if the plant's stressed. So if, if you're seeing, you know, these nodules, but you're not kind of getting the nitrogen benefit, it's, it's mainly due to plant stress at that point. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the plant, plant physiology has to kind of try to keep it all together, right? And the symbiosis sometimes can be sensitive to different, different stresses. It is pretty sensitive to, to drought and to salinity. At the same time, you know, if it can function well, it can also help against things like drought. So it's a bit of a, a fine balance in terms of, you know, can we think of ways to, to improve what's going on? But yeah, anything that stresses the plant is, is often going to stress the symbiosis. We've found... Um, Iron deficiency chlorosis, you know, which is a problem in North Dakota, that also seems to be really reducing the symbiosis as well. And I know these microbes can persist in the soil, at least for a little while, but with us stretching out, you know, pulse rotations four plus years because of disease susceptibility, is all the rhizobia pretty much gone every time you're, you're going into a new pulse? It depends whether you're talking about the rhizobium you might have applied as an inoculant that year or the previous year, or whether you're talking about rhizobium in general. Because this is where we got to start talking about, you know, the rhizobium we want to form the root nodules and the rhizobium we might not. So in a lot of cases, um, depending on the pulse, but, but pulses tend to form symbiosis with, with rhizobia that are already natural to our soils. So that's quite different from what, what farmers might be used to with soybeans, where Soybeans are, are non-native to here and the rhizobium are as well. So you plant a soybean for the first time and you don't inoculate, you won't get any nodules. I don't think that happens very often with pulses, assuming that those other conditions are in place, you know, not acidic pH, et cetera. Just because actually natural rhizobia exists in our soils that can nodulate, you know, most of the pulses that we have. That being said, one of the things we're thinking a lot about is that we don't necessarily want those natural rhizobia to be the ones that form the root nodules. So the inoculant strains have been carefully selected by industry to be ones that are the best at fixing nitrogen and supplying it to the plant. And so we actually want to make sure that the inoculant strains are the ones forming the nodules. So I would say, you know, the more time between those crops, the less likely the inoculant is going to be around and it's going to have been displaced by a lot of these natural rhizobia that have adapted to thrive in our soils, right? They've been living there for how many years, learning how to live in our soils. These inoculants are kind of coming in as foreigners and, and they don't necessarily have what it takes to kind of stick it out out there. And so, yeah, I think that's the big thing. And, and you know, particularly to try to make sure that that inoculant's getting in, in the nodules, I'd be thinking about inoculating every year. I know that some of the research in soybeans suggests you can take breaks and 
And that seems to be the case. But again, that might be more to do with the rhizobia for soybeans not being very natural to this area. Okay. So yeah, they have no sort of native competition. Yeah, it seems to be the case. Yeah. That's really interesting. I'm surprised for even something like, a, I think you said pea was ultra specific, you know, biovar of a species that can inoculate it, but still you could theoretically plant peas for the first time and see some of that. Oh yeah, without a doubt. In fact, for some of our research, we try to find soils without the rhizobia in there so we can kind of spike them in and look at responses and it's almost impossible. We haven't found soil yet from the state where we can put a pea in it and not get nodules on that. So at least, you know, one that's not got acidic pH or one of these other issues going on. So yeah, I mean, we're trying right now with one of the like hundred year old wheat rotations from NDSU to see if maybe, maybe that one will, will do the trick. But yeah, it's really hard. Not because we've been planting peas here forever, but because there are a lot of wild legumes, maybe native to the prairies, that do form associations with the same type of rhizobia as peas. You mentioned with the inoculants, you know, they have been designed to be ideal for nitrogen fixation for that particular crop. Uh, so have they really advanced over time as far as the inoculants today are much better than they were, say, a decade ago? Yeah, so I think they have advanced. The biggest changes in inoculant quality have, have not come from changing the microbes, but have come from changing the way that they're formulated. So a lot of new formats of inoculant that you can get are these kind of like granules that you can just throw right in with the seeds in the drill, which are a lot easier to deal with than the kind of sticky peats or the liquid, which you have to be careful to apply kind of right before you plant. So the formulations, I would say, have advanced a lot. And, and that is really important because when you take a living organism and kind of just want to leave it on your shelf in the shop for a couple of months and then plant it later, you know, that's a lot of stress for an organism that to, to have to deal with. And so having that formulation right so that they can survive and thrive until they actually get in the ground and, and want to start forming nodules with the pea is important. So that's where I think the advances in industry have really happened is in the formulations. That being said, I think less has been done than could be done, perhaps, with trying to improve the quality of the rhizobia and ensure that those rhizobia are able to form the nodules when they get in the soil to compete against these native strains so that we can be sure that our crops are actually getting the nodules from the right type of rhizobia. And is that something that, that you and your colleagues work on, sort of this development of strains of, of bacteria? Yeah, yeah. So we're, I mean, we're not trying to get in the inoculant business or anything, but we're trying to build a translatable knowledge base that can lead to improvements in the industry. So that's been a big focus for us is competition, you know, with any biological actually, and even more so with other biologicals than with rhizobia. These are living organisms that have to come into our environment, right, and thrive there somehow and stick around for the growing season, at least in the case of rhizobium, the plant makes a nice home for them. In other biologicals, you're just hoping that they can kind of stick it out against the rest of the microbiome. But thinking about that competition and, and what allows a microbe to thrive in a new environment is something we're starting to do a lot. You can kind of think of it like, you know, grabbing a giraffe and sort of dumping it in the middle of the prairies, right? <laughs> you need to try to make sure that these things are adapted. So we've been doing a lot of work to develop large collections of these rhizobia from across the state and to try to assess what the quality is of the natural rhizobia that exist in our soils. Potentially through doing that, we can find elite ones that aren't just great at fixing nitrogen, but are also really well adapted to thriving in our soils, right? 
If we can do that, then I think there's a lot of scope for improvement of the inoculants that we're using here. And so how, how do you give the good ones a leg up? Is it just through proximity to the root in the inoculation process? Yeah, I mean, that's the main way that inoculants do it. Yeah, is to try to get them close to the root so that when that pea is, is sort of germinating and starting to grow, it's, it's got them nearby. But, you know, that may not be enough in, in a lot of cases. I think there's an old idea in the literature that's called the rhizobium competition problem. And so basically that idea states that natural strains in the soil, you know, even when you inoculate, are so well adapted that they are going to tend to form the nodules on your crop. And that those natural strains don't always tend to be efficient nitrogen fixers. And so that's why that's called a problem is, you know, if, if they were all high quality, then we wouldn't care. We'd just be happy that we get nodules no matter where we plant peas, right? But basically not all nodules are created equal. So we would like to make sure that those high quality strains are the ones forming every nodule in the crop. You know, using inoculants is one way to try to do that. Making sure you, I would say, take good care of the inoculants using fresh product, making sure that they have maximum viability. Double inoculation is an option that, that I think has shown promise to try to really push it. But, you know, I think in our lab, we're interested in seeing, can we find strains that are well adapted to the soil that, you know, you could apply those as inoculants, get them close to the plant, but also make sure that they're less inclined to get outcompeted by those natural rhizobia. So that's something we're thinking about a lot as we're now measuring not just what the quality of the strains are, but how competitive are they compared to one another. And so, yeah, and that's something that historically has been quite challenging. It would take a really long time to, to measure because you'd have to kind of label two different strains and then put them together on the plant and then count the number of nodules formed by each one. But with next generation sequencing, the same technology that's letting us do a lot of microbiome work now, we can use approaches like that to, instead of look at a couple of rhizobia at a time, look at hundreds of rhizobia at a time. Um, and it's really scaled the throughput with which we can start thinking about how competitive different strains are. Right. You know, obviously you're doing a lot of that sampling and analysis. Is this something where it's getting cheap enough that, that a farmer could do regular soil testing of their rhizobial populations? Yeah. So, I mean, that's something we've been thinking a lot about. So. With an eye to, to that question you asked earlier about, you know, how many years can you go between inoculation or, you know, if you've had a drought, should you inoculate? If you have had a flood, should you inoculate? I mean, inoculants are cheap and in a lot of cases, I would say just go for it. But sometimes farmers might want more information than that. Or they may just be interested in how their agronomy is affecting the populations of these microbes. So we've been trying to develop tools that we can use similar to a chemical soil test and even using the same samples a farmer might send in for chemical soil test and tell them how their populations are looking at the different rhizobia they may be interested in. Yeah, so we've been getting to the point now where we can definitely do that if, if the interest is out there, quantify how many soybean rhizobia are present, how many pea rhizobia are present. And we're working with agronomists at the RECs to try to figure out, okay, well, if we get these numbers back, how do we translate that, that into useful information for the farmer? Can we come to kind of a threshold of if the rhizobium's at this level, then you'll definitely get maximum yield even if you don't inoculate, or if it's below this level, we would suggest inoculating or double inoculating, this kind of stuff. So when just thinking about whether rhizobia are present or not, we're definitely able to actually predict that and, and, and interested actually in working with farmers in the state to help to predict that for their soils as we develop this technology. 
where the future of that lies is not just thinking about how many rhizobia, but can we actually get a test that could think about the quality? So that's a little ways off. To do that, we need to take these collection of ours and actually figure out what genetic markers indicate a high quality strain. And that's some, somewhere I really hope our research program will go in the future. Um, could we get to the point where we could, from a field to field basis, predict how well the symbiosis is going to perform in each field based on the rhizobia that are there, the soil chemical parameters? I would love to kind of get to that point where we could actually say, if you're going to do peas, you should do it here because that's where you're going to get the best nitrogen fixation happening. Right. Right. Because even if you have a high population of rhizobia, if it's the low quality kind and, and you're going to get, you know, nodulation from low quality rhizobia, boy, you sure want to be inoculating in that situation. Yeah, exactly. So it's not just as simple as yes or no. In soybeans, it may be. And that's maybe where that tool has a bit more application. But it's, it's certainly a tool that's allowing us to do agronomy a bit faster. Think about how these different soil chemistries or weather events might affect populations. And certainly if the population is low, you should inoculate. But I think probably for pulses, I would say inoculate, inoculate <laughs> regardless. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's what I was thinking. You know, we've been, oh, there's a lot out there about regenerative agriculture. And I think a really, you know, noble ambition to have sort of closed loop systems where you've developed the biology, where you don't need a lot of inputs. But boy, until we can figure out, you know, whether you have low quality or high quality rhizobia, uh, it sure seems like inoculation is going to be essential for, for pulse crop growers. It sounds like soybeans is a different story, though. You know, I could see a future where we have both high quality rhizobia that also thrive in the soil. And then we could look at trying to get, you know, a given field enriched with high quality rhizobia. You know, if you can get those forming the nodules, they become enriched after the field season. Many of them get released back into the field, right? And they do kind of help to boost their own populations. But if you're not getting the nodulation by good rhizobia, then it's the poor ones that are repopulating the soil. Mm -hmm. Now, I always think about microbes as <laughs> organisms that can reproduce very quickly. And I'm sure there's variation in there about, you know, which can and which can't. But, you know, early in our conversation, you said, you know, if you have any presence of rhizobia out there, it doesn't take much nod factor for the plant to say like, yeah, I'm going to make these nodules. Is that because they can reproduce so quickly? And if so, help me understand that in the context of like why we would care if our populations were super high. It's not that they can necessarily reproduce. I mean, I guess compared to a plant, yeah, they can reproduce pretty quickly. But there are thresholds where the optimum number can be present on the root at the optimum time to make sure that nodules are formed quickly and early in the growing season to make sure the plant gets that boost from nitrogen that it needs early on, right? So as soon as the plant wants to start forming nodules, we want to get it forming as many as possible and get those kind of booted up and activated as quickly as possible because that can make the difference early in the growing season, presumably between maybe getting ahead of weeds or whatever else if you're, if you're growing in a nitrogen-limited condition. So it's not just about are there nodules, it's about can they form as quickly and optimally as possible. So it's still something I think that's not really super well studied, but from the greenhouse experiments we've done, when we inoculate with different concentrations of rhizobia, although we get nodules, you know, as low as even 10 rhizobia per gram, which is like almost nothing in the soil, we still see benefits in terms of the growth of the plant up above 1,000 or 10,000 rhizobia per gram in the soil. I think because you're just getting that that whole process kicking off more efficiently and quicker, even though eventually, yeah, the rhizobia could probably colonize and will eventually form nodules. 
you want that thing fixing nitrogen as soon as it's growing, right? You don't want to be waiting on that. Yeah. And, you know, what would you want your message to specifically to farmers out there? Uh, maybe it's something we've talked about. Maybe it's something that we haven't that you just want to add on to. But, you know, with regards to nitrogen fixation and nodulation, what would you want your message to growers to be? I think, you know, I would say you should be inoculating. Nitrogen has its costs and it's not something you want to be dependent on. The costs are going up financially very quickly. Governments are starting to look to regulate nitrogen use, even though it's so important to get the yields we need on the farm. So I would just encourage farmers to be thinking about now learning to use these crops that can fix their own nitrogen and to get those into your rotations in advance of who knows what will happen in the future when you can't afford fertilizer or when the government might be regulating its use. For now, I would say just inoculate, but also I think there's a lot of scope for improvement. And I think we can expect good products to be coming out to be overcoming some of these challenges, you know, with, with inefficient rhizobia nodulating legumes that can be maximizing nitrogen fixation on the farm. All right. Well, with that, that's going to do it for today's episode. Thank you very much to Dr. Barney Geddes for being on the show. Uh, during our conversation, he wanted me to make sure to encourage anyone, especially farmers who are interested in these topics, to reach out to him. He's done cross-state sampling trips and he's trying out some soil testing tools. And so if any of this is interesting to you, please feel free to reach out to him directly. And I'll link to a page with all of his contact information in the show notes of today's episode. Well, I hope you're enjoying this season of Growing Pulse Crops. We've definitely covered a wide range of topics. Make sure you're a subscriber so you don't miss our next episode with Montana agronomist Jeannie Root. The researchers that work in these crops, that pursue these kind of things, kudos to them for how much they really matter in my area. We're trying to figure out what to do with lentils with the root rot pressure and peas. And uh, the grasshoppers is the one more thing and the icing on the cake, it feels like with lentils right now. But they really matter to our economy. When I talk to the growers about growing fewer lentils, root rots, grasshoppers, all the reasons we need to grow fewer lentils, it's really hard to walk away from what has been just a tremendous cash crop for them. So to the bigger picture, the research on grasshoppers, but anything else too, man, what they do matters to us. Again, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss that upcoming episode. The Growing Pulse Crops podcast series is overseen by the Pulse Crops Working Group with funding from the Northern Pulse Growers Association, the North Central IPM Center, USDA NIFA, and the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council. We're releasing these episodes two times per month throughout the growing season, and we want to make sure this information stays relevant to you. So if you're finding it useful, we'd love it if you'd leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or both. And feel free to tweet us anytime by using the hashtag growing pulse crops. We'll be back with another great episode in a couple weeks. <laughs>